Alright, Habakkuk chapter number 3 begins this way in verse number 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked, by discovering the foundation under the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So there's a few things as we come to a packet, chapter number 3, that we notice right away. One, we notice that this is both a prayer and a psalm. There are only about seven or eight prayer psalms in the Word of God. Uh, it'd do you well to take some time and study through them. The rest of them are in the book of Psalms. But here we have this unique feature of literary style. Habakkuk is praying. He's pouring his heart out unto God. Uh, but at the same time, he is praising the Lord. I would not say necessarily that this experience was altogether pleasant for Habakkuk. Now, the reason I point that out is because, you know, sometimes prayer is hard. And just because prayer is hard, that doesn't mean it can't lead to praise. In fact, I think the statement could be made tonight that sometimes the hardest prayers lead to the highest praise. Through those difficult paths that we walk, when we're praying and not understanding God and having to walk by faith, many times God can elicit from us the depth of spirituality uh, that is deeper than anything else and the height of praise and glory unto Him that is higher than anything else. 
And that's what we have in Habakkuk chapter number 3. Now, we have looked at each of these chapters in course with a theme in mind. The first is uh, in chapter number 1, and we notice this thought that the prophet is troubled. He begins not understanding what's going on around him. He is troubled at the wickedness of society. He asks God to intervene and judge society. And God says, well, Habakkuk, I'm going to do that very thing. I'm going to send the Babylonians to come and to judge the Israelites. And this then leads Habakkuk to a greater uh, troubling of mind. He says, Lord, you know, how could you use a more wicked people than Israel uh, to judge Israel? How could you use more wicked men than we to judge us? And can I just pause and say here, um, uh, boy, how do I even say this right? If your anticipation is that the judgment of God is always going to come from a moral position, you're going to miss a lot of what God's doing in this world. In other words, if your assumption is always that you're going to be able to look and the, the judgment of God is always going to be dispensed by more righteous hands than the recipient's hands, uh, this world's not going to make a lot of sense. You know, the Bible tells us that God makes even the heathen to sing His praises. And God uses wicked men to His own righteous purposes. And uh, that's not inappropriate, nor is it out of keeping with what God has done. After all, He uses me and you. And certainly we're not fit to be used of God. Uh, maybe the better way for Habakkuk to look at it, instead of saying, God, if you won't use us, why would you use them? Maybe the better way would have been to say, God, if you had been willing to use us, then it's no surprise that you'd use them. After all, if God could use wicked sinners like us, why would we be surprised when He would use wicked men to pour out His judgment? Uh, so we looked at the, the Habakkuk state of mind, the, the prophet being troubled in chapter number 1. Chapter number 2, we examined this thought, the prophet is taught. Now Habakkuk uh, gets real quiet, and he just decides to listen to God. Uh, you know, that's when you learn things, is when you get quiet. Uh, in other words, it's impossible to argue and to listen at the same time. It's impossible to dispense truth and learn truth at the same time. Uh, if you want to learn from God, you're going to have to sometimes be quiet, quit criticizing Him, and just let His wisdom unfold before you let Him teach you. And that's what Habakkuk learns in chapter number 2. He gets quiet, he sits himself on the watchtower, and uh, whether that's literal or figurative, it's really immaterial. Uh, it, it, it conveys the same truth that instead of, instead of trying to weigh things, he's just going to watch things. He's going to sit there and wait on God to reveal truth to him. And that's exactly what God does. God teaches him uh, how that he's going to judge not only Israel by the Babylonians, but then he's going to turn around and judge the Babylonians, and that God's ways are all perfect. In the midst of that chapter, we have one of the seminal statements of the Word of God. In fact, it's so important that you'll find it repeated three times in the New Testament. Uh, in Habakkuk chapter 2, in verse number 4, it says this, uh, let me find it here. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And you'll find that again in the book of Galatians. You'll find it in the book of Romans. You'll find it in the book of Hebrews. In other words, and we've probably not done justice to that verse, if I'm just being frank. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about it than what we have said about it. But it presents to us the framework of the walk and life of the believer. Uh, many people are confused when they are called upon to trust God in uncertain circumstances. Uh, we want God to be simple and easy to understand at all times. But the Bible makes no uh, confusion about it. It makes no bones about it. The Bible tells us plainly that we walk by faith and not by sight. If when you got saved, you thought that you were going to understand everything about God, I'm sorry, some TV preacher lied to you, but that is not the truth. You are not going to understand everything about 
uh, what God does, and uh, nor would you want to. What a paltry God he would be if he made sense to us. He wouldn't be much of a God, would he? And so we looked in chapter number 2 about Habakkuk, the prophet, being taught. When we come to chapter number 3, we could title it this way. If in chapter 1 he's troubled, and if in chapter 2 he is taught, then when we come to chapter number 3, we find that the prophet is triumphant. In other words, we see the elevation of Habakkuk's faith as he learns to just trust God. He takes to heart the exhortation given in chapter 2 and verse 4. And this just man begins to live by his faith. This chapter divides itself. We could divide it in a number of ways. Uh, Our notes divide it into three portions. uh, Verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 15, and then verses 16 down to the end of the chapter. Uh, But we can divide it a number of ways. In fact, one of the neat ways that you can divide it is by using that poetic, that musical term, Selah. Uh, Three times in this chapter that word Selah is used. And certainly it would be appropriate to divide it in that way as well, depending on your perspective. But for the sake of the lesson tonight, we'll look at it in those three categories. And we've defined them this way. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, we see that faith surrenders. It surrenders to God. It yields to Him. In verses 3 through 15, we find that faith sees. It sees things that uh, the natural man cannot see. And in verses 16 through 19, we see that faith soars. It elevates Habakkuk above the troublesome world that he's living in and allows him, he uses the language in verse 19, says that uh, that God will make his feet like Heinz feet. Uh, now, Heinz is, is not just a steak sauce. Somebody say amen to that. That's, that's spelled different. But the term Hind is a deer-like creature that was common and still is in that part of the world. And so uh, you can think of a deer. That would be appropriate when you come across that term Hind in your Bible. Uh, in other words, it it makes him his feet like deer's feet. And we'll say a word about that when we get to it. But let's study this uh, passage together and let's notice these three thoughts. The first we notice is faith surrendering to the Lord. Let's notice verse number 1 and 2. Uh, it begins with an almost um, official designation in verse number 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianah. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now the first thing we notice here is Habakkuk's response to the revelation. He says that he was afraid. And he uses another musical term in verse number 1 that conveys that same truth. The word Shigianoth is the plural of the word Shigion that is found in Psalms chapter number 7. And what it signifies is a loud cry in a time of danger or joy. David used the word in a time of great danger. Habakkuk, the only other biblical writer to use the word, employed it at a time of both, of pain and of praise. Isn't that interesting? It's a cry of alarm. It's almost like the, the, the being startled, being, being afraid, but at the same time being excited uh, by what has been unveiled before you. And Habakkuk is basically tying this revelation to those times in our life when we are both surprised and then consequently delighted at what God is doing in our life. I'll tell you the honest truth. God surprises me on a daily basis. Uh, God rarely does things the way I expect Him to. I'm being frank when I say that. Rarely. And maybe I'm just not very spiritual. Maybe I'm not very sharp. And both of those things are true. 
But uh, God rarely behaves in the way that I anticipate Him behaving. And Habakkuk could identify with that. He's saying, you know, when I heard what God was going to do, I was horrified at the thought that the Babylonians would be used to judge us. He uses the term afraid. He says, I'm terrified at the prospect of what God is doing. But at the same time, he says, I'm excited to know that God has all of this in hand and that He is going to then turn around and judge the Babylonians. Can I say this? Surrendering to the will of God is both a terrifying and a triumphant thing in our life. You wouldn't be human if you didn't feel a little bit of fear about what God may have in store. That is the natural man. That is the, that is the old man. We was preaching about him Sunday morning. That's that old king. And he, and he doesn't like the idea of uncertainty. I'm, I'm by nature a planner. Uh, you don't ever want to go on a trip with me because I'm going to have everything planned out. That's just my nature. Uh, I, I, that's how I like to do things. And uh, all right, it ain't testimony time. Put your hand down. Um, but, at the, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, there, uh, the reason I'm like that, there, there's a little bit of fear in the unknown. You want to have a plan, and you want to know the plan. And isn't it just like us, as God's people, we always want to know what God's plan is. Uh, you know, a, a great many Christians want to make the plan and have God sign off on it. An even fewer amount are willing to follow God's plan as long as God discloses all of it to them. And an even rare, very few in life are willing to give God the blank check of their time, their talents, and their treasures and say, God, you just let me know when you need me. I'm here to do anything that you need me to do. It can be a terrifying thing, but let me say this. There's no more exciting life to live than a life surrendered to the will of God. Habakkuk saw things that nobody else see because he has surrendered to the Lord. So even this musical annotation here is rich with, with truth and significance. You know, many people have the idea that it's always an enjoyable experience getting to know God in a deeper way. But that's not what the saints of God in the Bible found. In fact, Moses trembled at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. Joshua fell on his face before the Lord, as did David. Daniel became exhausted and ill after seeing the visions God gave him. The vision of Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration left Peter, James, and John face down on the ground and filled with terror. When John excuse me, saw the glorified Christ, he fell at his feet as though he was dead. Sometimes as you get to know God, it is not a comfortable experience. It doesn't mean it's not a glorious experience. But sometimes God's going to push you out of your comfort zone. We like to imagine that God's going to show up uh, like a preacher on Sunday morning with three points in a poem and, and give a nice invitation and we just meet Him in a calm, placid way at the altar and have a nice little discussion about our relationship. But sometimes God comes crashing into your life like a wrecking ball. Sometimes the way that He works in your life is not so polite and uh, non-disruptive as we would like for it to be. When Habakkuk realizes what God's doing, he is excited, but he also uses that term afraid. He said, I've heard thy speech, denoting uh, what had been uh, revealed in chapters number one and number two. And Habakkuk says, it's interesting, I don't want to read more into this than God put in it, but uh, we could even maybe draw a distinction between Habakkuk's frame of mind at the beginning of this uh, psalm and at the end of the psalm. Before he sees the vision of the glory of God, 
Uh, he's terrified by what he sees. And I do not believe that that necessarily robbed him of a holy reverence when you get to the end of the chapter. But certainly when you get to the end, he's not talking about being afraid anymore. He's saying, man, I've learned I can trust God in the midst of all of this. So here's what I'm saying. As you get to know God, God's going to push you out of your comfort zone. Sometimes He's going to call on you to do things that you don't think He's cut out for. Sometimes He's going to ask you to give things to Him that you don't think you can live without. But if you'll just hang in long enough to see the glory of God, you'll be just like Habakkuk at the end of it all. Your feet will be like Hind's feet. You'll be elevated to a higher plane of relationship with God and spirituality. So we see Habakkuk's response to the revelation. Number two, we see Habakkuk's request for revival. He says this, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, commentators disagree about this, but I have a pretty singular opinion about what he means when he says, Thy work. And I believe he's talking about the spiritual condition of the land of Israel, and particularly of the kingdom of Judah. It was the only kingdom uh, that was left at that time. What he's saying is, God, the work you're doing on this earth in a broad scope, let it not hinder the work that you desire to do in our lives personally and immediately. It's interesting that phrase, in the midst, is used here. This expression occurs some 273 times in Scripture. But this is the singular and only time that it refers to the concept of time. Every other time it is spatial in its nature. But here it is chronological. It is time-oriented. Time like an ever-flowing stream was hurrying on its way. Somehow Habakkuk felt that he was in the midst of the years between the flood and the apocalypse. And so he was. About 3,000 B.C. would have been when this was pinned down. Enoch was uh, translated and Noah was born in round figures around 2,400 to 2,500 years before Habakkuk lived. From Habakkuk's day to ours are about 2,500 to 2,600 years. And we have every indication to believe that the Lord's returning soon. In fact, it would not be surprising, in other words, to acknowledge that where he's at in this stream of time is in the middle of God's vast, eternal, redemptive plan for humanity, the revelation of God to his creation. And here's Habakkuk, little old Habakkuk, standing in the middle of all of that. That's going to carry greater significance when we move a little further in this text, where I think there's a duality of application as we go further. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I think Habakkuk, I think he's looking backwards at some things that God has done. He's looking forward at some things that God is going to do. Certainly even in the immediate He's looking at how Israel exists at that moment. He's probably looking backwards at the sort of, uh, you know, short-lived reformation that took place under Josiah. Almost like a, like, like a lurch forward towards revival. But now he's learned from the Lord, revival's not gonna come. Reckoning's gonna come. Ruining is gonna come. Here is Habakkuk standing in the middle of all of this. Now you say, preacher, what's the significance? It's not as much where he stands. Rather, it's what he says. It's amazing to me that Habakkuk has impressed upon his heart and spirit that he is living in a time, I'm going to use the word inexorable, unavoidable. The judgment of God is coming. It's not something that I think Habakkuk had any doubt about any longer. God gave no conditions. Sometimes, you know, in the Old Testament and the prophets, he would say, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. If you don't repent, I'm going to send judgment. Nowhere in the book of Habakkuk is there a clarion call to repentance given to the nation of, of Judah. It's almost as though God has said, listen, it's, it's done. Her wound is incurable. Uh, the die is cast. It's not going to change. Judgment is coming. 
And Habakkuk, in the midst of that, he says, you know, Lord, I know judgment's coming. I know it's not going to be avoided. I know you're going to perform all these things. But Lord, in the midst of these years, in the midst of all these things, God, in wrath, and I know we deserve your wrath. I know that we deserve the judgment. But God, in the midst of your wrath, remember your mercy. You know, we've made comment about it a few times as we've talked through, but Isaiah tells us that judgment is God's strange work. Uh, God judges His children the same way parents most of the time, and sadly there's some broken souls that maybe take delight or joy in it, but most parents would tell you that when they discipline their child, they hate it. And my daddy always told me growing up, said, Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I always thought, well, if it was a real whipping, then you'd let me whip you. Amen? That, that'd really show me. But he never took me up on that offer. You really want to hurt me? Give me, give me the belt. But, uh, uh, you know, it's always begrudgingly. God will behave and, and act and respond in wrath. And even in that wrath, He's doing it in love. But you know, mercy is God's comfortable condition. It's what He wants to do. It's what He desires. He loves mercy. He wants to have mercy upon people. There are times that man's iniquity forbid his mercy. But I think when Habakkuk prays and he says, Lord, I know you're going to have wrath. I know you're going to pour out judgment. I understand that and we deserve it. It's amazing to me that in the midst of this uh, forward march, this unavoidable march of judgment, his faith drives him to pray for revival in the hearts and minds of himself and the people around him. You know, I, I've, I've sensed this thing, and, and it, it exists really probably in all of society. It's probably partially a product of the wickedness of the world that we're in. But Christians, some people, uh, Christians sometimes become fatalists when it comes to the matter of eschatology. Uh, listen, I believe Jesus is coming soon. I have no question about that. I believe He's coming soon. Uh, but that doesn't mean God can't do a work right now. You say, preacher, everything's wicked. We're in the lay of the sin age. Yeah, and I probably agree with that. But hey, even in the lay of the sin age, the Lord was standing on the outside knocking to the door and saying, if any man open up, I'll enter in. I'll come in. I'll suck with him and he with me. One preacher said it this way, and it stuck in my heart. He said, you know, we are not victims of prophecy. We are victors in prophecy. And this whole fatalist mentality of, well, the Lord's coming soon and the world's getting wicked so God can't do nothing, you won't find a shred of Scripture for that. God can give revival in the midst of these days. Uh, Probably part of the reason we don't see it is people quit praying for it. They gave up on it. They said, well, we just can't have it, so let's just hold out and hold in and hunker down and everything else until the rapture happens. But that's not what Habakkuk was doing. And can I remind you that Habakkuk, he has had a certified guarantee from God that very imminently judgment is coming. I mean, I would say even this, and I don't want to get in the weeds here, it'd be easy to do, but I would say that Habakkuk had more reason to, more surety in the immediate impending judgment of God than even we in the New Testament church can suggest that Jesus is coming in the next ten minutes. Now, He, he can come in the next ten minutes. He might come in the next ten minutes. I'm praying He comes in the next ten minutes. But inasmuch as we stutter our Bible correctly, uh, I believe we could say that if the Lord tarries His coming, it's still not tarrying. He could wait and He could tarry, and we don't know when He's coming back. But Habakkuk understands that this generation He's ministering within, they're going to stand back and wonder at the work that God has done. In other words, I'd say this. He is guaranteed judgment is coming, but that does not prevent Him from praying for revival. He's saying, Lord, I I know you're going to pour out wrath, but God, I know you. And I know you have mercy too. And Lord, I'm praying that in the midst of these years, I know you're doing a big work, but God, do a work in our hearts. 
Listen, I know God's got a calendar. I understand that. I, we could talk all day long about eschatology and, and, and God's calendar and the plan that God has for the world. And, and I love doing it. But don't forget in the midst of all that stuff, God has a broad plan. Praise the Lord for it. But God also has an immediate personal desire to work in the hearts and minds of His people. And just because uh, we may have a fully framed and fleshed out idea of the next thing on God's calendar, don't think that God ain't going to show up today and do a work in this local body or in your local church or wherever it might be. God desires to bring revival to the hearts of His people. So I think there's faith even in His prayer here. He's saying, Lord, I know what you're going to do, but I also know who you are. And so I'm praying that you would give us revival even in the midst of these years. If Habakkuk was praying for revival, every born-again New Testament uh, believer ought to be praying for revival in their church. So here we see that faith surrenders. Next we see that faith sees. Look with me at verse number 3. Uh, Habakkuk begins to disclose this vision of God's glory. And it begins this way. He says, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. Now, there are basically three perspectives on the portion of Scripture we're about to read. One is that it is purely and entirely figurative in nature. Now, the only purpose of it is to communicate to us certain things about God's attributes, but that it's not tethered in any way to the past or to the future. This is just all figurative, poetic language. The second perspective is that this is describing historically God delivering the children of Israel from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. The third perspective is that this vision is apocalyptic in nature, meaning that it looks forward to the time of the tribulation and it looks to God's conquest or Christ's conquest over the Antichrist and his army. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, preacher, three good options. Which one is correct? And my answer to that is yes. You confused yet? In other words, I think that in a sense all three of them probably have merit and application. As we study through prophecy in the Word of God, you'll find that prophecy basically has three qualities to it. Now, sometimes it can be purely one of these qualities and characteristics or categories, and sometimes it can be two of them, sometimes it can be all three. Prophecy in the Bible can mean one or all of three things. Number one, it can mean foretelling. That's what we think of with prophecy, right? That's God saying, here is something that is going to come to pass. Uh, And we find that all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, we find foretelling prophecy. There's also a type of prophecy that is prevalent in this church age in the ministration of the body of believers. And uh, that word prophecy is used in the following epistles. It talks about he gave some prophets, and it's talking about ministering in the local New Testament church. What is that kind of prophecy? Uh, well, I don't think that's like Miss Cleo at the 3 a.m. You know, tarot card reading on, on Channel 7 on the TV. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I don't think it's talking about the charismatic down the road that prophesied that you know all of your diseases are going to go away if you'll just send 999 to their ministry. Rather, I think that prophecy is what we could say if if one type is foretelling the predicting of the future or the unveiling of the future, uh, then the second time is what we could call foretelling. In other words, it's a means whereby God speaks in wisdom and knowledge about the condition of an individual. Now, you experience this, I hope you do, when, when you hear the preacher preach. Uh, you ever felt like God somehow uh, that, that gave the preacher your diary? You ever felt like that? You ever thought, man, how does he know all this stuff? Well, listen, i got news for you. We ain't, we ain't signed a contract with Google. We ain't got cameras in your house. 
Uh, that ain't me. That ain't any other preacher doing that. I'll tell you exactly what that is. That's the Holy Ghost of God taking the preached truth of God, and He is applying it to your heart. And really, it's amazing because the work is more being done in your heart and mind than it's being done in the pulpit. Preacher gets up and preaches whatever God laid on his heart. And I'll be honest with you, when I preach, I rarely know the condition of the people in, in our church. I, I, I make a, an active effort to not know what our people are getting into. And, you know, I, I usually don't know what's going on, but guess who does? That companion, that comforter that dwells in your heart, here's what he does. He takes that Word of God, that engrafted Word, and he takes your conscience, and he takes your mind, and he slaps all those together and he says now don't you know that God knows what you've been up to that's what we call forth telling but then there's a third feature in prophecy and here I think we have this uh, presented to us in the word of God in Habakkuk chapter 3 it's what we could maybe call foreshadowing now foreshadowing sometimes can be a combination of the first category and the second sometimes God can be talking about something going on immediately in the heart and life of an individual But through that, he is almost like he's casting or projecting a future image of something that's going to take place. Probably the classic example of this in the book of uh, Daniel is uh, the Old Testament prophecies concerning a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. You could study, and God is descriptively talking about a historical, from where we stand, a historical figure, and is talking about things that that man did. You can read about it in Daniel 7, you can read about it in Daniel chapter number 11. But it becomes apparent as you study that text, you get to a place, if you know the history of Antiochus, that it's obvious God is no longer talking about Antiochus. Starts to talk about end time things and the Messiah coming, the anointed of God coming, and the setting up of God's eternal kingdom, all these things. And it becomes apparent that he is talking explicitly about things that did not happen in Antiochus's day. Uh, boy, try to say that ten times fast. Antiochus's day. Uh, but also things that we would even have to admit have not taken place in our day. So in other words, there is a, a foretelling that's taking place. He's prophesying some things going to happen with Antiochus. There is even a foretelling taking place. He is talking about the heart and mind and condition of Antiochus. But then there is a foreshadowing that's taking place. He looks beyond that and looks to a future date and a future event. You can see the same thing in Daniel chapter number 2 when it talks about that uh, fourth kingdom. You can see it in Daniel chapter 7 when it talks about the fourth beast. It's apparent if we read our history that it's talking about the Roman Empire. And yet we find that it looks beyond the Roman Empire and looks to the setting up of Christ's millennial kingdom. So it's a foreshadowing that is taking place. And sometimes it's clear and plain to see when that change in the nature of of the passage takes place. Sometimes it's not so clear. Uh, but God would often do this. You'll see it as you as you study the Bible. Uh, he'll be talking about something that happened, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, or, or now from where we stand, 3,500 years ago. And then in the very next verse, he's talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, what is he doing? Well, he is foreshadowing some things, and they bear certain characteristics. I think we have that taking place in these next few verses. I don't think it's inappropriate to suggest that these, this language is highly figurative. I mean, when the Bible talks about God having horns coming out of His hand, I don't think God, if you were to be able to see Him as He dwells, even in His glory, He'd have horns coming out of His hand. That's figurative language. It's talking about God's power and God's ability. 
But I also think that some of the language in here seems to vividly be talking about things that God has done in the past from where Habakkuk stands. For instance, in chapter number 11, it talks about uh, the, uh, let me find it down here, the sun and the moon standing still in their habitation. Or you can read in the book of Joshua and hear that that has happened. Now, maybe that will happen again one day. Uh, It's entirely possible. There are things in the Bible seem to suggest that. But I don't think it's inappropriate to say this could be reaching into the past and recording some history about what God's done in the children of Israel. And yet it becomes even more apparent, particularly when you get down to verse number 13 and 14, when he talks about uh, wounding the head of the house of the wicked, that he's talking about something that has not taken place yet. He's looking forward, and very likely that's speaking about the Antichrist. So as we read this, it's important to understand, yes, some of this language is probably figurative, and we'll handle that in course. It won't take us long to move through this passage of Scripture. Some of it probably harkens back to some things that God has done in the past. And some of it undoubtedly looks forward into the future as to what Christ will do when He returns in glory. All of those things are probably rolled into this. And recognizing that truth will help clarify some of the passage. Now you might say, well preacher, that's confusing. Why did God do all that? Because the preeminent uh, focus of this passage, more than anything in the past, more than anything in the future, is to unveil to Habakkuk God's character and nature. This is not a prophecy that is about the past. It is not about the future. It's given to Habakkuk, who's in the midst of the years. And it is revealing who God is, that he might have a nail to hang his faith on. So the first is in verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Teman was the southernmost large city of Edom. And Paran was the wilderness region in the east-central part of Sinai. So the words Teman and Paran embraced the whole district south of Judah, including Sinai. Habakkuk saw the Lord's glory coming from the south. There can be little doubt that there is an apocalyptic perspective to this phrase. It marches in step with the kind of end-time truth we find in the book of Revelation. The Lord is seen coming from the far south of Judah and stepping on Edom, uh, Teman, the archetype of Israel's antagonistic neighbors. Edom represents the hostile Arab nations that today surround the state of Israel. And you'll find that to be common in the Word of God. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about another apocalyptic vision of Christ coming in glory talks about him having his uh, you know treading out the winepress of the fierceness and wrathness of God it talks about him stepping on Basra and on Teman and those are cities and places and mountains in Edom so in other words we're not just looking to Habakkuk for this 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 is uh, consistent throughout the word of God that Edom who are the descendants of Esau seem to be associated with those immediate neighbors around Israel that bear such hostility towards them it's also possible that Habakkuk is retracing the march of Israel from Sinai to the Promised Land. There you have almost that blending we were talking about. Verse 4 says, His brightness was as the light, and he had horns coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. Now, and I haven't mentioned this, I guess I should in the notes, we're under uh, letter A there on point 2, talking about the Lord's presence. And uh, verse 3 reveals the region that this is taking place. Verse 4 speaks of the resplendence. Resplendence. I'll get it said here in a minute. Not splendor, resplendence. Uh, it says that his brightness was as the, as the light. Now, the Bible tells us that God is the Father of lights. Uh, the Bible also tells us in First John that God is light. 
the Bible uh, tells us that when Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he appeared as a bright and shining light. So in other words, it seems to connect the idea of God's infinite power and His righteousness. He's wanting to remind Habakkuk that when the Lord comes, He comes in perfect righteousness. That He comes not hidden, not compromised, not intermingled with goodness and bad, but He is bright as the light. He comes in perfect righteousness. He says He has horns coming out of His hands. Here again in the Bible, horns are always associated with the idea of power. Uh, you can find it in Daniel's prophecies where it talks about the horns uh, that grew up out of that beast. And there's other places in the Bible. It talks about in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. I think it's chapter 11. It might be chapter 8. Uh, I didn't get that far. I, didn't have, I don't have all those sources in front of me, but you can study it and find it. Uh, where it talks about the uh, conflict between the he-goat and between the ram. And it talks about uh, well, the, the uh, ram running at it with its horns. It talks about the power of the Medo-Persians and the Grecians. So uh, the term horn consistently in the Bible seems to be deeply connected with the idea of power. And that makes sense in light of the next phrase. It says there was the hiding of his power. Now let me stop and make a practical statement here. Isn't it good to know that there's power in the Lord's hands? That when he, when he handles things, that's what hands are. They're the instruments of will, right? That's how we uh, manipulate the world around us, typically. It's how we control things. Your feet move you, right? Uh, but your hands move what's around you. And his hands, his ability to interact and deal in the world are all powerful. But isn't it interesting that next phrase, it says, There was the hiding of his power. In other words, the Lord always has power in his hands, but you don't always see the power that's in his hands. Sometimes that power is hidden. Sometimes in the way that the Lord's hand moves on your life or mine, it may seem like God is moving in passiveness or restraint. But rest assured, there is always power in the Lord's hand to work in any situation. If He's not exhibiting that power, it's not because He's unable. It's because in His providence He deems it unnecessary or inappropriate. So we see His resplendence. And then we see his re- the result. It says, Before Him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at His feet. Now again, this could harken back to Israel. Certainly some of the plagues over uh, Egypt were, were pestilence. Uh, however, it could also look forward uh, to the tribulation. For the Bible talks about uh, that gray horse going forth and pestilence going out upon the face of the whole earth. And you say, well, which is it, preacher? Well, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Both of them are trying to communicate <laughs> that God has a myriad of means to exercise His will. God has the ability, and and let me just say this, maybe somebody needs to hear it. Uh, God has control even of the viruses, even of the diseases, even of the sicknesses. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to be cautious and careful and use common sense, but understand that God has the ability even to use pestilence and disease as a means of executing His judgment upon this world. Now, people have said, well, preacher, do you think COVID is judgment of God upon upon our earth? Well, listen, God may be trying to get our attention. I think the judgment of God will probably be something worse than even what COVID is when it finally comes. But I would say this, God has the ability to bend those things and to use those things according to His will. One day He will do that. He's done it in the past. One day He will do it again to bring this world to its knees before Him. Then we see the Lord's power described. Look at verse number 6. We see the Lord rending the world. Firstly, we see Him doing it methodically. It says, He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways were everlasting. 
Now again, this could be looking back to the myriad of nations that God conquered, uh, particularly uh, you know in the Old Testament it talks about the kings of, uh, of in the desert, Sihon and Og, I think uh, is what they're called. I'd have to go back and look. But how that God miraculously defeated, uh, and there's not much said about it in Scripture because there wasn't much to say about it in Scripture. God smote those nations and destroyed them to clear the path for Israel marching through the wilderness. So certainly God has done that in the past. But I would remind you, He will once again do it in the future. He will bring the nations of this world to their knees. He will defeat them. He will destroy them. He has that ability. He beheld, and I like that phrase, He beheld and drove asunder the nations. It implies that God, with full vision and clarity and perception, is going to perform this. He doesn't do it just because he gets mad. He doesn't do it because he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. There's no uh, you know, variableness nor shadow of turning with him. He does it in deliberate clarity, judgment, and righteousness. And doesn't that suggest it to us? At the beginning of verse 6, it says he stood and measured the earth. Now, why do you measure something? You want to find out its condition and its dimensions. In other words, God assesses the earth. And what he does, he does in perfect measure and in perfect righteousness. Listen, I don't know what's waiting for our country. One preacher said, if God don't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think there's probably some truth to that. We may see some judgment of God, but you rest assured, when God brings judgment, he does not do it lightly. And he does not do it casually. And he does not do it flippantly. He does it carefully, deliberately, and righteously. He measured the earth. And listen, uh, keep in mind, it's easy sometimes to look around at this world, get discouraged, think, man, everybody's wicked and getting away with it. Where's God? Uh, Listen, there is one that holds the measure and tape. He's got the plumb line. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. And there's coming a day that he's going to take that plumb line and drop it on the nations and see where they stand and expose their crookedness and deal with them in judgment. So we see he does it methodically. Number two, we see he does it mindfully. It says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan, or Cush, sometimes in the Bible, refers to Ethiopia. And Midian refers to the area of Arabia opposite Ethiopia. So that whole region there. Uh, So we know, and well, let me pause before I finish that quote. Uh, It's possible it's talking about the overthrow of Egypt in the Old Testament. Uh, it's possible that that is talking about how that the nations trembled and how that Egypt trembled and was brought to her knees through the ten plagues that were given, that God bowed and cowed that great empire. But, you know, Ethiopia and Midian, both these regions, also feature prominently uh, in the prophecies concerning the battle of uh, Armageddon. Uh, we know that the Ethiopians will be numbered among the enemies of God's people in the last days. They will side first with Russia in Ezekiel 38.5 and then with the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel 11.43. So again, I think we have this blending. Uh, But what does it tell us? It tells us that God has the ability to work not just in His own people, but in other people as well. Uh, So we see Him rending the world. Number two, we see Him riding the waves. Verse number eight. Now this is interesting. It says, Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Now, I have a question, and it's still a question to me. I mean, you could probably have any number of these opinions, uh, and I wouldn't throw my, my shoe at you. But what rivers, what waters, what sea is this speaking about? seems to me that there are basically three possibilities in Scripture. could be looking backwards at the Red Sea. 
And that sort of makes sense when you read this. It says, Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Later on, it's going to talk about the waters in verse number uh, 10 being being heaped up and him passing through the, the heaps of waters. I think it's verse number 10. I might have to look a little more carefully. Uh, but that God will, will march through heaps of waters. And certainly that's how the Red Sea was. That water was heaped up on either side also possible that this could be talking about God's judgment upon Babylon. I won't go through the whole history of it, but if you've studied it, you know that the way that Babylon uh, was defeated was that the Medo-Persians dammed up, or they diverted uh, the Euphrates River, uh, snuck under the walls, the impenetrable walls of Babylon, uh, and took the city of, of Babylon on that night that Belshazzar and his uh, and his lords and his uh, people were uh, getting drunk and reveling and stuff. Uh, so it's entirely possible. There are other prophecies in the book of Jeremiah for instance, uh, that predicted in the book of Isaiah, that predicted that very event taking place that God would, that though it would be the Medo-Persians that would divert the river it would be God drying up the river and making a way for Cyrus and his armies to go in and defeat Babylon. So it's possible that's what it's talking about. But now wait a minute, there's another place. Do you remember in Revelation 16 12? If you don't remember it, let me read it to you. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So now here again we have this feature. Could be looking backwards. Could be looking immediately in the future to the destruction of Babylon. Could be looking way in the future to the drying up of the Euphrates River to make way for the kings of the east. You say, which is it, preacher? Yes. Could be all of it. It's hard to say. But I would say this, the truth that it reveals and conveys to us, irrespective of which exact event Habakkuk may have had in mind. And listen, I want to be careful how I say this, but I'm not always sure that even what the the penman had in mind was either the, the explicit or the limit of what the Holy Ghost had in mind. In other words, I think there's probably times Habakkuk may have had any of these three in mind. And the Holy Ghost may have meant all three of them, or one of them, or uh, several of them. It's hard to say. Uh, We don't really know. But we can say this, that we understand God has the ability to bend even nature to His will uh, in exacting His judgment upon the earth. Uh, I, listen, I, I'm not going to get too deep into it tonight uh, because I think you can get, in, I think you can get into, into hairy situations by trying to attribute every bad thing that happens in the world to the judgment of God. If it's the judgment of God, God can disclose that. But I would remind you, uh, God has the ability to use tornadoes and hurricanes and avalanches and volcanoes and uh, earthquakes and all of these things He can use for His judgment. In other words, He doesn't even need human agency to exact His judgment. Uh, He can even let creation bear witness to His authority and use creation to do it. Verse number 9, we see Him not only rending the world and riding the waves, but we see Him remembering the Word. Uh, Habakkuk says, Thy bow was made quite naked. Now, that is talking about a bow and arrow and saying that uh, he saw God fire an arrow of his judgment upon the world. But notice this phrase. This is of, of interest. It says, According to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word say law. Now, there's two possibilities with this. You're probably getting sick of hearing me say that, but I'm sorry. That's how the lesson goes. There's two possibilities here. It could be one. could be the other. And guess what? It could even be both. He could be referring to the oaths, the promises of God that were sworn to the fathers of the tribes of Israel. For instance, to Abraham in Genesis 12, to Isaac in Genesis 26, and to Jacob in Genesis 28. 
I think another possibility, and maybe even a more likely possibility, uh, is that it's referring to the divine blessings that were dispensed by Moses on the twelve tribes in Deuteronomy chapter 33. The fact that it says the oaths to the tribes, and it uses that plurally, it distinguishes them as individual tribes, seems to suggest to me that it's probably not talking about the general covenant promise of God that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. But two times in the lives of the sons of Jacob, they were giving, given blessings. Once by uh, Jacob in Genesis 49, and then again as tribes, they were given blessings uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter number 33. Uh, those uh, blessings that were given in Genesis 49 on the individual sons distinctly, uh, they tend to deal, they did deal with prophecy, but they also dealt with personality. They seem to be more, if we want to say, uh, something in between foretelling and forthtelling. That Jacob was describing his sons and their attitudes and where that was going to lead them in life and what that was going to do to them, good things and bad things. But when you come to the prophecies that are given, the blessings that are given in Deuteronomy 33, they seem to deal distinctly with God's plan for the tribes themselves. So I tend to believe that that's probably what it's referencing. He said, Preacher, what does it teach us? Well, one simple truth. God has a treaty relationship with the nation of Israel. God has made promises. And God is a promise-keeping God. That's true. He's made promises as regards us in this New Testament church age. Uh, but here, referring to this, is talking about the promises He's made to Israel as a people. And God don't break His promises. You say, but Preacher, Israel's been rebellious. I know, but God don't break His promises. Uh, preacher, but you don't understand. They rejected the Messiah. I know they did, but God don't break His promises. Uh, some of the promises he gave are conditional, but a whole heap of them are unconditional. When he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. What is a covenant between an immutable God and himself? That's a promise. <laughs> the, the, the strength of a covenant uh, relies in the ability of both parties to keep it. So when God wanted to make a covenant, He didn't make it with nobody else. He made a covenant with Himself as regards His promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And they're reiterated in Genesis 15. That's what the Hebrews writer is talking about when God put Abraham to sleep, brought him into that covenant. But God made the covenant with Himself uh, so that He could say, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Here's what God did. God said, Abraham, you go to sleep, and when you wake up, you'll be a part of this contract that I have signed with Myself. He is a covenant God. He is a promise-keeping God. Uh, So we see the Lord's power, and then we see the Lord's progress. I know you don't think we're making progress, but we are making progress. Look at what it says down there in verse number 9 at the end of it. Uh, We see that nature trembled. says, Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hand on high. Here is described for us violent storms. Uh, Habakkuk uses dynamic poetic imagery to describe Israel's march through the wilderness as they followed the Lord to the promised land and then claimed their inheritance. The Red Sea opened to let Israel out of Egypt, and the Jordan opened to let Israel into Canaan. The Egyptian chariots sank into the mud, and their occupants were drowned, but God's chariots were chariots of salvation. Also, we could say that verse 9, uh, in, in speaking of this, speaks about nature trembling during the tribulation period. There's several portions of Scripture that talk about uh, great storms, great violence, great earthquakes, things like this, in equipping, or we might say assisting, rather, God in pouring out His judgment. Uh, verse 9, if we're looking at it through a historical perspective, uh, pictures the various battles that the Israels fought en route to Canaan. Battles that the Lord won for them as they trusted Him and obeyed His commands. 
In verse 10, we move into the promised land and see Israel conquering the enemy. God was in complete control of the land and water and used His creation to defeat the Canaanites. Uh, verse 10, it's possible, describes the victory of Deborah and Barak over Sisera uh, when a sudden rainstorm turned their battlefield into a swamp and left the enemy's chariots completely useless in the book of Judges. So we see violent storms. Number two, we see visible signs. It says, The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spirit. Uh, very possibly, verse number 11 uh, refers to the famous miracle of Joshua when the day was prolonged so Joshua would have more time for a total victory. The Bible tells us there had never been a day like it uh, before then or since then as it's recounting in, I believe it's First Chronicles, in describing that day, saying that from that point backwards there had never been a day uh, where that had taken place. Also possible, the Bible talks about great signs in the sun and the moon during the tribulation period. Uh, so it's possible it's looking forward. You say, uh, which is it, preacher? Well, it doesn't matter which it is, really, to be frank. Uh, could be one, could be the other. Likely, it is both. But from where Habakkuk's standing, what he sees is that God has command even of the celestial bodies to, ex- to exercise His will. This is a large feature uh, in the book of Revelation. The Bible talks about, uh, you know, uh, a great, I guess we call it a meteor or an asteroid or whatever. I'm, I'm not... I'm not uh, up on that, know how to say it, uh, but hurling that, that great stone, that great rock from heaven called wormwood and, and uh, bittering the waters and all sorts of things, tells me this, that God not only has this earth at His disposal, He has all the heavens at His disposal as well. Now, can I just pause here? I'm about to make somebody mad, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, don't this all make this climate change stuff just seem silly? I mean, don't it just all just seem so dumb? When you read the Bible and recognize that God has control of the sun and the moon and the stars, and the seas and the mountains and the hills and the valleys. And, and listen, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, I, I think we ought to be good stewards best as we can. But listen, it's God's earth and He's able to take care of it. And God has set a course for it, you know. Uh, so we see visible signs. Next we see the nations trembled. Verse number 12. Uh, we see the Lord saving mightily. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Leading His army, God marched through Canaan like a farmer threshing grain. And His people claimed their inheritance. But again, when we look forward to the end time, we find that God is going to likewise do the same. Uh, one commentator said this. I thought it was interesting. It says, At the actual time of the Lord's return to reign, the whole world will be gathered in hostile armies at Megiddo. East and west will glower at one another, determined to decide once and for all who will rule the world. Let me give you a perspective, and I'm going to give this very quickly because we must hasten. Um, all my life, here's what I thought of when I thought of the Battle of Armageddon. I thought of, here's, here's America, and here's Israel, and they're standing there back to back, and there's the Antichrist, and here's all his armies, and he's getting ready to destroy them, and last, last second, lickety-split, here comes Jesus to save us Americans and those Israelis. But the more I study my Bible, the more I'm beginning to think that what you're really going to see when you look at the tribulation is that the world is basically going to fall along two lines. And it's essentially going to be a conflict of both East and West. And that the reason it centers upon Israel is because all across the world, there are displaced Jews all across the world. Many of them, for to be honest, that hold high levers of power, great amounts of money, great influence. And all of them are deeply interested in what happens to the land of Israel. 
If you study current politics in Israel, you'll find out that there are basically two competing views about what Israel should be. There is a globalist Marxist perspective of Israel that views uh, the power of Jews as needing to be spread throughout the nations only uh, with you know Israel being sort of a headquarters for that. Then there's what we might call a more traditional and nationalist uh, perspective about Israel. And the idea is that uh, the Jews need to go, kick the Muslims out of the land, reclaim it, and build there a power structure that is dedicated to their ethnopurism. These two worldviews, you really study out what's going on in this world around us. Much of the things that are taking place, things like who becomes president, which wars we fight, why we have the trade treaties we have, those things begin to make sense when you understand those competing world views. There's a lot that don't make sense uh, that begins to gain clarity. Can I just give you one example? Let me put my tinfoil hat here on, on for one second. Explain to me why a couple Saudis knocked down two buildings in New York and we went and displaced Saddam Hussein in Iraq. That don't make a lot of sense, does it? Then we turned around and fought a war in Afghanistan for 20 years. We did that because a handful of Saudis knocked down a building in New York. Now, if you can riddle that out, you're smarter than I am. But when you begin to understand these two competing worldviews for Israel and how very powerful, very wealthy people that, that are deeply connected, divinely connected to that land are trying to see those competing visions lived out, what's going on in the world begins to make a whole lot more sense to you. And I believe the reason that during the end times you're going to have this great battle, they're not coming there to fight Jesus. They're God-haters. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, They hate God. They hate Christ. They hate the Bible. But they're not coming there to fight Jesus. They're coming there to wrestle like two dogs over a rib bone over this little land of Israel because it is pivotal to their relative perspective views about what the world needs to look like. Then, and by the way, I think America is going to be part of them arms. I think America is probably going to be part of that great Western coalition. And then there will be an Eastern coalition. And these uh, two world uh, powers are going to meet. And there, in the midst of all that, you know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to show up and say, "Uh, excuse me, that don't belong to either of you. That belongs to me. And he's going to take control. Now, you can disagree with that, and that's fine. We can argue about it, but that's all we're going to give time to it right now. Uh, look at verse number 13 with me. we got to move. You, y'all can't keep slowing me down like this. We've got to hurry. Verse 13 says, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Very likely, thine anointed is thy people. He's talking about Israel. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation out of the neck, say law. Now let me say this, we'd really have to stretch to apply that to anything in the past. There are places maybe you could, but you'd really have to stretch to do it. There's a place in the future that we can very neatly and easily and immediately make application. Uh, It says in verse 14, Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. In what seems to be a reference to the Antichrist, Habakkuk cried out, Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. This lawless one will be destroyed by the Lord at his return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Habakkuk saw him discovering the foundation under the neck. In other words, the Lord will overturn the Antichrist empire from top to bottom. He will turn it upside down, thus putting an end to it. Verse 14 tells us that those who come as a whirlwind to destroy the defenseless will be destroyed by their own weapons. His stage means his own weapons. 
The head of his villages probably means his leaders. The poor here probably refers to the beleaguered nation of Israel. The idea behind verse 14 seems to be that the ragtag motley armies ordered to Megiddo will have little in common, no matter which side they are on, the side of the Antichrist and his ten kings, or the side of the conglomerate kings of the east. National hatreds and rivalries will march along with the various armies, and quarrelsome nations will turn on each other. In other words, he's going to destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. It's what we're told in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But these nations are likewise going to consume and turn on one another. If you read in the book of Joel, you can read about the confusion in that day of battle and how they're going to turn on one another. So that seems to be what's described. I have... Four more hours that I want to say about that, but I've got to hasten. Verse 15, we see the Lord saving miraculously. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. In other words, this vision culminates with seeing the Lord victoriously coming triumphantly in the day of victory. Now, one final thing. Please be patient. You've been with me three weeks. Please be patient. Look at the last point. We'll hurry through We see not only that faith uh, surrenders, we see faith seeing, but then we see faith soaring. Notice first Habakkuk's trembling. It says, When I heard my belly tremble, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. Now all that is describing the physical exertion or, or exhaustion that he is feeling. The, uh, he, he's literally sick to himself when he sees this great coming destruction that is going to take place. Then he says this, I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up into the people, he will invade them with his troops. In other words, Habakkuk says, I saw this and it terrified me to death. And my only thought was God spare us. God spare me, give me rest in that day of trouble. We could go to the New Testament. I believe He's given His people rest in Christ. And I believe that rest extends to even that day of trouble. But we see Him trembling. He's deeply bothered by what He sees. But then we see an about face. We see Him trembling, but verse 17 through 19, we see Him trusting. Verse 17 says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olives shall fail. And the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. What's he describing? He's describing the massacre, the ruin that would follow the coming judgment. Possibly he's talking about the judgment of Babylon upon the land of Israel. Possibly he's talking about the judgment of Christ upon the armies of the Antichrist in the land of Israel. But irrespective, he's saying, I looked and it looked like a nuclear war zone. But he says, you know what I've decided? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. When Habakkuk started his book, he was down in the valley wrestling with the will of God. Then he climbed higher and stood on the watchtower waiting for God to reply. After hearing God's word and seeing God's glory, he, came like a, he became like a deer bounding confidently on the mountain heights. His circumstances hadn't changed, but he had changed. And now he was walking by faith instead of sight. Listen to this. He was living by promises, not by explanations. Two things I would say about this. One in the way of exposition. I believe what he's recognizing is that the relationship that he has with God, Habakkuk's a Jew. He's a part of this group. He is a part of those that presumably would live to see the judgment of God. 
But he recognizes that in spite of whatever dispensational category he falls within, that he also has a personal relationship with God. And that God will deal with him on a personal level. In other words, just like you prayed earlier in the chapter, Lord, I know you're bringing wrath, but along with it, bring revival. In the midst of all this, God, work in my heart. Work in the hearts of the people that I love. And now as he comes to the close of the chapter, it's like he's saying, you know, I've seen what it's going to be. And it's going to be rough, man. It's going to lay waste to everything. But I've done made up my mind that God is a trustworthy God. And in the midst of all of that, I'm going to rejoice in Him. And what He'll do if this world turns to, to ash and turns to dust, is He'll give me hind's feet to step up to a higher plane. God will not forsake me. He will not forget me. He will not abandon me. But let me make another statement, and this is my closing statement. What he has learned is this. Even when there ain't nothing in the barns, even when there ain't nothing in the fields, even when there ain't no calf in the stalls, even if God's work in our life brings us to what the world would call utter ruin, we still ought to trust in Him. Job said it this way, Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. I'd say Job could have looked out over them fields that were once rich with corn and wheat. He could look out over those, uh, over those orchards that were once rich with olives and fruits and bounty. He could look at those stalls that once had cattle and sheep and oxen uh, in the midst of it, and every bit of them were empty, and all of it laid waste. He could look over across the property at that house that once held the laughter of his kids, his beloveds, and all of it was gone. But he learned this basic truth that faith enables us to elevate, to transcend the ruin that's around us and trust in the righteous one that's above us. To live not on the plane of calamity that we may find ourselves in, but rather to live and dwell in the presence of an all-glorious, all-righteous God that never fails His people. What he learned is it can look all bad here, but I don't have to dwell down here. My body may walk these weary roads, my, my, my tangible life may exist within this plane, but the life that matters cannot be touched by the world around me. It lives, it dwells, it exists in the plain and presence of God's glory. And if we could just put it simply, what he learns is this. He learns, it don't matter what happens to me down here. As long as I'm safe, secure within the covenant promise of God, as long and God is a covenant and promise-keeping God, as long as God is who He says He is, that's enough for me. He sees a lot of things in frustration. But now he begins to see some things in faith. And he learns that what he sees in faith is more important than what he sees with his physical eyes. We don't have to be slaves to our circumstances. The world wants to make us slaves to our circumstances. A person has problems. A person gets hurt. They become victims the rest of their life. But we have victory in Christ Jesus. And by faith, we can elevate and transcend the wickedness of the world, the weariness of the world, the woes of the world. And like hind's feet, we can dwell in that place. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians calls it heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We can dwell in the knowledge and strength of who Christ is, who we are in Him, and what He's done in our lives. We don't have to be beholden to those things that are around us. Faith has elevated the prophet from, from the valley to the watchtower to the mountaintop. And you know, it all began because he was bold enough to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I love you and I trust you. Teach me, Lord. Teach me and make me to understand.